Welcome to the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, psychologist and researcher at NYU, Dr. Tony Bossis, reviews one of the first FDA-approved clinical trials of psychedelic drugs since the research was effectively banned in the 1970s. His work is part of a recent renaissance of psychedelic research, and the results point towards the possibility that psilocybin and other hallucinogens may be useful in treating anxiety, addiction, end-of-life suffering, and in studying the neurobiology of mystical experience. This talk, which was co-presented with CIIS's Center for Psychedelic Therapies and Research, was recorded on October 22, 2015, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, on our website, and on Digital Commons. Great to be here. Joe, Janice, thank you so much. This is great. Quick caveat, I'm getting over a bit of a cold, so uh, please bear with my voice. If it goes weak, bear with me while I juice and water up here and have lozenges as well. Um, I have to start by talking a bit about my relationship with CIIS. So like I would imagine all of you, at some point in my life, I came across this incredible mountain of literature and history and wisdom of comparative religion and mysticism and transpersonal psychology and psychedelic research and all that wonderful integration of spirituality and and psychology and, and, and all. And, um, it was, I went to college back in the late 70s. I'm dating myself. Um, and then in the early 80s, I had this uh, career insight. I'm going to go do psychedelic research. I want to get a degree to do that. Not a very good career decision because in 1983, nothing was happening anywhere in the world. But I, I thought I'd go get a degree. And I came across the California Institute of Integral Studies. And I, this is pre-internet. And I ordered their catalog. I can still see it. It was a yellow catalog with the courses. And it was the grooviest thing I've ever seen for a PhD program. Um, and I carried it around with me, and I have to go to this place. And I flew out to the West Coast, and it was in the old location. Who knows the old location when it was on, what street was it on? Uh, Ashbury. Ashbury. It was a great yellow stucco place with real character. And I sat in some courses, and Ralph Metzner was the dean at the time, and struggled with my dilemma, East Coast, West Coast, and ended up doing a degree in New York. And then when it came time for the next degree, I came out again thinking I would stay here and do CIS, and life put me back to the East Coast again, and I got my, my doctorate out of Delphi and NYU, great contemporary solid psychoanalytic tr- tradition, but always wondered if I came here, what would have happened? The path not taken, and I always had a fondness for CIIS um, and what they do. And then 30 years later, I meet Janice, or 25 years later probably at that point, and we quickly become friends and colleagues, and then I meet Joe. And, and so, bottom line, 35 years later, here I am speaking at CIS, so I, I finally made it home. <laughs> I have the catalog somewhere. I should find it. All the pages are torn out with you know, courses on Buddhism and psychotherapy. I didn't get that at the East Coast. And there were no rooms at my university that had in the master room. It didn't exist. It doesn't happen in New York. So we want to talk about, I want to talk to you a little bit about today about this incredible research we're, we're doing with psilocybin from the magic mushrooms. 
uh, FDA, DEA approved studies. And I want to discuss just three implications today. One is the end of life. One is religious studies and this new study that Janice kindly introduced. And also the implications for consciousness. I mean, what is consciousness? We don't really know. Where is consciousness? This, this relief here is wonderful because it sets the tone. <clears throat> this is a relief of the Buddha on his deathbed. And what do we notice? He's dying with equanimity, <clears throat> peace, acceptance, dignity. And this is the goal. This is the good death, <clears throat> as we say in palliative care. This is the objective of a palliative care treatment and of our psilocybin work. I want to start with some quotes from patients in our psilocybin cancer anxiety study. Some of these patients have passed away, some in early stage cancer, but the anxiety was so crippling that they were admitted into the study, and some are now end of life. These are quotes they made about their experience in our study on psilocybin. This changed my life. It's hard to describe the changes, but I feel more contented and happy about my place in the world and all the things I'm doing. I felt this constant state of becoming. I felt gratitude. I never felt before in my life. I feel totally welcome. Death doesn't matter. I'm less afraid of death. <clears throat> death is part of life. Right now, I have no fear of recurrence of cancer. It does not enter my mind from a woman who was crippled with anxiety of recurrence where she couldn't function. We'll talk about her later. She's doing beautiful now. Something else I experienced was the feeling that one is eternal <clears throat> and that all of existence happens in every moment. There wasn't a part of this experience that isn't love, all love. Just a few more. I was being healed of being anxious. I'll skip that one. I can't even imagine it regarding to the fear of cancer. Change is everywhere. It's why we're here. It's all change. I've been looking for things my whole life. I have everything I need. I have, I have it. I found it. I don't need to look anymore. I have everything I need. Everything is love. So many of you, whoops. May I, who, who saw this article in New Yorker early this year? Wow. Usually half the hands go up. This is CIS. <laughs> Psychedelically tuned in to the... So the, there's been a lot of media about the research. Um, one of the remarkable things this article did, and Michael Pollan did through, through the article, was to separate kind of the cultural frenzy and the sensationalism of the 60s psychedelic culture from the important scientific contributions investigating these meaning-making medicines. And that's what they are. They're meaning-making medicines or, time ago, sacraments. And this research asks very important questions. And one is, do we have the capacity to be wired for meaning? And apparently we do. And if so, why? Well, this research involves drugs, in this case psilocybin. These aren't drug studies per se. 
Most drug studies, most drugs work while the drug is in your body. The desired effect occurs while the drug is active. Think about Ativan or Prozac or the statins some of you are taking for your heart today. Hopefully not many of you. <clears throat> Psilocybin is out of your system in a few hours. But the experience, the transformative experience is what changes people. And it appears to be the, the change agent. It's the experience. A little history which you all probably know. We'll go through this quickly. Psilocybin is a naturally occurring compound in many species of mushrooms. It was called flesh of the gods by the ancient Aztecs. A long history of ceremonial use by indigenous cultures. Uh, it's similar to the neurotransmitter serotonin, and it converts uh, psilocin in the brain. I'm not going to spend much time tonight discussing the science of it. There's some wonderful literature on the neuroscience and PET scan and imaging research with psilocybin and LSD and other agents um, that I think is crucial. Uh, but my focus typically is on the phenomena this, these experiences can provoke uh, that are so transformative. They've been used for millennia. We know they've been used in the Mayan culture for spiritual insight. There is good evidence they were used in ancient Greece. We'll talk about later with the Eulcinian Mysteries either psilocybin or a related compound to it. And so psilocybin burst upon the American scene in 1957. It's a great history. In this Life magazine article by Gordon Wasson. Now, Gordon Wasson was a, uh, a vice president for J.P. Morgan and an ethnomycologist. He studied mushrooms. And by the way, for those who are my age or older, you recognize Bert Lahr, the cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz. Um, Wasson participated in a um, Mexican ceremony with psilocybin with Maria, Maria, Maria Sabina, you see in the photograph, an actual photograph. He had an incredible experience. He wrote about it in this article, and it gained a lot of attention, as you would imagine, including that of the of, of folks, Albert Hoffman and others, who synthesized it eventually for research in America and elsewhere. When I, when I discuss these agents, many people don't know, and it's incredible to think about it today, given the, the frenzy of the 60s and even the kind of the sensationalistic spin this could have. But the government approved a, a mountain of literature on psychedelic research from the 50s through 1970 and a little beyond. A thousand clinical and research reports were written. About 40,000 subjects participated. It was so not almost not mainstream, but so accepted in some ways. People like Cary Grant, Esther Williams, took it an outpatient psychoanalysis and said it changed their lives. Cary Grant, who knows the Cary Grant literature on this? People know about Cary Grant. I mean, he's like 1950s America, uh, about as straight as you get in terms of the Americana. And um, he spoke openly until the day he died about how it changed his life. That before that he was, in his words, a narcissistic, womanizing manipulative guy he didn't like, a lot of self-loathing. And after that, he really became authentic and had an incredible journey. And he speaks openly about it, and it's out there on the internet. Um, but as we all know, in the mid-60s, a lot of the indiscriminate use and recreational use and cultural and media sensationalism brought it to a halt. In 1970, by an act of Congress, all the research became completely out of reach. But there were some promising developments. One was in, I'm going to speak about tonight, working with psychedelics and people at the end of life, suffering with end-of-life anxiety that many of us might come to know. 
also with alcoholism and other addictive disorders. It also allowed us to begin to look into this, this phenomena of peak or mystical experience that have been common throughout millennia by mystics and others, and that I would suggest, and many have, that is the cradle of most religions. It's actually called it the perennial philosophy. And it took three and a half decades of, of little or no, no research until Johns Hopkins, which we'll discuss in a few minutes, um, did a groundbreaking study in 2006, um, and then UCLA and now at NYU, and I'll discuss each of those sites in a moment. So this is, just isn't neurochemistry. It's about, at least in a large part, what the chemicals are, are triggering, which are generating, and that is mystical experience. And um, it's really at the foundations of most of our religious, traditional religions. Um, and there's an incredible literature on it from all angles. William James's incredible groundbreaking work in 1901. This book, I think, is almost more incredible than William James's book. It influenced William James. If folks don't know it, I'd recommend you getting it. It's still in print. Richard Buck was a Canadian psychiatrist who had a spontaneous mystical experience and wrote this incredible book that influenced William James about profiles of people throughout history, Christ, Buddha, Spinoza, Walt Whitman, other people of note, and, and regular folks of his time who had spontaneous mystical experiences. And he writes about these incredible, this incredible phenomena. Rudolf Otto wrote about the numinosity. Carl Jung, the Mysterium Tremendum. Abraham Maslow, a local hero to you folks, wrote about the peak experience. And Maslow wrote, to the extent that all mystical or peak experiences are the same in their essence and have always been the same, all religions are the same in their essence and have always been the same. There's something common. There's something which is left over after we've peeled away all the localisms, all the accidents of particular languages or particular philosophies, all the ethnocentric phrasings we may call the core religious experience or the transcendent experience. In many ways, this research is about this experience. It's really a transcendent experience or mystical experience research generated by the chemical, well, in this case, the fungi, psilocybin. And of course, one more foundation was Aldous Huxley, the literary giant who, as many of you know, was also interested in applying these medicines to the end of, to end of life suffering. And Huxley wrote, I skipped ahead too quick, the living can do a great deal to make the passage easier for the dying, to make the most purely physiological act of human existence to the level of consciousness, and perhaps even of spirituality. And I love this photograph. This is an actual photograph of, of Albert, of Albert Huffman, of Aldous Huxley on mescaline, given to him by Dr. Osmond in 1953 in the hills of Los Angeles. This experience led him to write this book, The Doors of Perception. And I love this photo for one, its historical note and value, but also only Huxley, literary giant, elegant Englishman, comes to a trip wearing a tweed jacket, beautiful trousers. <laughs> I mean, just well-dressed, right? No cheesy, right? This is... And in his wonderful novel, Island, he writes about the moksha medicine which is a psychedelic, and he writes, the dying face, increasing pain, increasing anxiety, 
increasing morphine with the ultimate disintegration of personality and a loss of opportunity to die with dignity. That statement could be written in any palliative care textbook today. Uh, let me go through this briefly, but you all know this. So the mystical experience is marked not by belief, but by experience. States of consciousness described as unitive, mystical, have myriad names in the spiritual lexicon, including Satoria, Kensho, and Zen, Theosis in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and Samadhi in Hinduism. The perennial philosophy proposes at the core of the world religions lies a universal, fundamental, mystical truth regarding the nature of self, consciousness, and ultimate reality, experienced through direct insight. And Albert Einstein, who I think was a mystic, wrote, the most beautiful and profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. Let's walk briefly through the criteria for a mystical experience. These criteria were written back in 1966, in the 60s, earlier than that, 63, by Walter Pankey, one of the pioneers, and by Bill Richards, a pioneer, and who's still conducting research today at Johns Hopkins, the only person living who's a bridge between the early research and the modern research. And um, I, uh, I salute him, and he's been a mentor to all of us. And these criteria will be used in today's scientific studies. One is a sense of unity, a strong sense of the interconnectedness of all people and things, all is one. The noetic quality coined by William James, a feeling of profound insight or intuitive knowledge with a tremendous force of certainty, a sense of sacredness, intuitive response of awe, humility, holiness, reverence, and wonder in the presence of this inspiring reality. A very important one is transcendence of time and space, a sense of timelessness, transcending past, present, and future. This roots one typically in a very larger panorama or landscape, and it puts things in perspective. I've been touched by what patients in our studies have said. I kind of like them to pull the lens back on an experience, and they pull it back further and further where they don't identify so much even with their body, their self, or their cancer. Even in palliative care work, and I'm a palliative care psychologist, we help people try to understand that they're not their pain, they're not their disease, they're something more enduring. And these experiences seem to facilitate that awareness of pulling back and seeing themselves on a much larger landscape. Now that lens gets pulled back so far sometimes where they even peek beyond the boundaries of birth and death. We'll speak about that a little bit today. And that gets some people in some academic centers raising their eyebrows when I say that. You folks just accepted it all. <laughs> of course it does. <laughs> CIF. Meister Eckhart. There exists only the present instant, a now which always was always and without end is itself new. There is no yesterday nor any tomorrow, but only now. People come out of their experiences experiencing this profoundly. Historical side note. Einstein had a very dear friend called Michel Beza. Who knows this story about Michel Beza? Good. Very close friend of his. He passed away, and Albert Einstein was very touched. And so physicists, like mystics, understand time is not linear. It's all happening in the moment. When he passed away, he wrote the family a letter that's now a very famous note. And Albert Einstein wrote to the family, Now Beza has departed from this strange world a little ahead of me. That means nothing. People like us who believe in physics, or mystics, 
know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. And Einstein died three weeks later. And the two final criteria are deeply felt positive mood, joy, blessedness, peace, and love to a degree of tearfulness. People just weep as they experience this. And an ineffability that it's hard to describe in language, and also paradoxicality that people experience things that an ordinary conscious wouldn't make sense. Something like, I experienced everything and nothing, or I was dead but never felt so alive. That's also a criteria for this research. So fast forward 35, 40 years, and in 2006, Hopkins produces their incredible research study with healthy volunteers, duplicated, and we'll talk about later, a 1962 study at, at, in Boston at the Marsh Seminary. And they show that psilocybin can indeed generate a complete mystical experience. 60% of their subjects did that. 67% of their subjects rated the experience with psilocybin to be either the single most meaningful experience of their life among the top five most meaningful experiences of their lives. I should point out one of the authors, Bob Jesse, is here tonight, who um, is instrumental in this research, and thank you, Bob, for coming. 33% rated it as the most single spiritually significant experience of their lifetime. These are some quotes that people in that study said about their experience. I'll just read a few. You can read along. The sense that all is one, that I experience the essence of the universe and the knowing that God asks nothing of us except to receive love. So the third one, the experience of death, which initially was very uncomfortable, followed by absolute peace and being in the presence of God. It was so awesome to be with God that words can't describe the experience. 43, the part that continues to stick out for me was knowing and seeing and experiencing with every sense and fiber of my being that all things are connected, a core criteria for a mystical experience. And it was considered a landmark study by everyone. And it resulted in some high-profile people, including the former White House drug czar for George Bush, saying that these medicines should be used, could be used, to help those at the end of life with their suffering. And of course, that's what we're doing. So just some of the articles from the 50s and 60s, I'm not gonna go through them on end of life research that Stan Groff, Bill Richards, Spring Grove did with psilocybin, LSD, and other agents with people <coughs> suffering end of life distress. And more recently, Charlie Grove at UCLA did a pilot study looking at a low dose of psilocybin with cancer patients and found reductions in depression and anxiety with no side effects. So let's talk about death for a bit. I promise it won't be uncomfortable. It might be a little bit uncomfortable. How do you want to die? Where do you want to die? What's a good death? Let me take two people. How do you want to die? Someone want to drink my water? Who's going to answer that? Go ahead. Not all alone, with people around you. Feel all alone, I'm sorry. Where do you want to die, others? Yeah. Okay. So, that's what everyone always says. To die not feeling alone, to die in peace, dignity, 
family, friends, children around us. That's how we used to die. Um, with the medicalization of death, it's a recent phenomenon where we die in hospitals and ICUs behind closed doors and behind curtains, whoops, out of sight of the culture. Somehow, you know, giving birth and dying are both pushed behind curtains. Why, why is that? It, was, it wasn't always that way. Um, and that's what we call a good death, with people around us in a comfortable setting, without pain, with purpose. But despite that hope that all of you might have, many Gallup shows that 9 out of 10 people, 90%, would rather die that way, but most die at home, or I'm sorry, most die at institutions, surrounded by medical equipment and medical staff. Research reveals over and over and over again. In general, Americans are not dying good deaths, but bad deaths, marked by needless suffering and disregard for patients and families' wishes or values. And one of the key values and missions is to help with the existential emotional angst. You know, death is a difficult part of life, but it's, it's a part of life. Um, and um, we need to all kind of bring it back into the national conversation. So this should be on the other way around. It should be most people die at home, but it's reversed, sadly. Most people die in places where they shouldn't be dying. It should be upside down. You know, it's funny. I put this op-ed from the New York Times in my slideshow, an earlier version of my slideshow, probably 10 years ago. And it's still, of course, as relevant. It really is the most avoided conversation in medicine. We just don't talk about it. Now, work in palliative care, and, and oncologists don't want to speak about the end of life. What can we do to prolong it? Two more weeks. Institutes of Medicine call out spiritual being as a core criteria of how what they call palliative care. Palliative care affirms life and regards dying as a normal process. It integrates the spiritual aspects. Keep this in mind as we talk about our study in a little bit. This is, this is the foundation for the psilocybin cancer studies. We know through research now that spiritual well-being and meaning have demonstrated in hard research at Sloan Kettering to be buffers against hopelessness, depression, and a desire for a hastened death. We know that. So the question is, how do we cultivate meaning and existential well-being? It's really a dilemma for all of us. There's some meaning meant meaning cultivating psychotherapies. But having done that and worked that way, it's not so easy. And to see these patients come out of these sessions in hours and in days transformed is something to see as a palliative care clinician. This is an incredible study looking at the most important factors in all the literature published to date. This is 2009. And what were the most important factors to patients and families? And the top three is what our research gets at. Meaning and purpose, self-transcendence, and transcendence with the higher being. And we're going to discuss transcendence quite a bit. So in 1997, the Institute of Medicine really called out to improve how we die in America. Uh, and sadly, nothing much has changed. This past year, in a recently released article, they confirmed depression in the final year of life has increased 26%. This is decades later. And people die was called demoralization syndrome, a sense of hopelessness, meaninglessness, 
and existential distress are the core phenomena. Who knows Viktor Frankl? Right? Great book, Search for Meaning. Holocaust survivor, and he cultivated logotherapy, a psychotherapy organized around finding meaning. And he writes, man is not destroyed by suffering, he's destroyed by suffering without meaning. Cicely Saunders, the founder of the hospice movement, writes, you can find a degree of wholeness as a person, whether you get better or not, whether you are suffering or not, and I've seen people find wholeness even as they die. So being healed, finding wholeness, is independent of the cancer, of the disease, or even the dying body. The body can die, but the person can be healed. And Viktor Frankl, again, meaning can be found in life literally up to the last moment, up to the last breath, even in the face of death. Nothing is born, nothing can die. Read one more thing, then we're going to move into the study in a minute. Um, Eric Cassell is a very well-known physician, um, and this was a very famous article in medicine, and it wasn't about psychedelics. It was written in uh, 1982 about end of life, and uh, it's a landmark paper, and he could be speaking to our study. He writes, transcendence is probably the most powerful way in which one is restored to wholeness after an injury to personhood, such as a cancer diagnosis. Everyone has a transcendent dimension, a life of the spirit. This is most directly expressed in religion and the mystic traditions. When experienced, transcendence locates the person in a far larger landscape. The suffering is not isolated by pain, but is brought closer to a transpersonal source of meaning and to the human community that shares those meanings. Such an experience need not involve religion in any formal sense. However, in its transpersonal dimension, it is deeply spiritual. The quality of being greater and more lasting than an individual life gives this aspect of the person its timeless dimension. Here we go. The profession of medicine appears to ignore the human spirit. When I see patients in nursing homes who have become only bodies, I wonder whether it is a transcendent dimension that they have lost. I should point out, transcendence also has been linked to improvement and end-of-life suffering, not through psychedelic work, just transcendence in general, through psychotherapy and through spiritual practice. So transcendence and meaning are shown to be buffers against end-of-life distress. This is a great article. If people could find this, I would recommend it. Um, the references on the bottom. This guy, Egnu, put together some of the greatest names in, in end-of-life and spirituality, Kubler-Ross and... Uh, Saunders and Bernie Siegel and, and on and on. Eric Cassell was part of this. And they tried to define healing. And they spent time together throwing around this word, what does it mean? And one was to make sound or whole, the restore approach to spiritual wholeness. It comes from the root how, which is from the word holy. It's independent of illness, independent of the cure of disease. And their 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 conclusion was their definition of healing, which is just Perfect. Healing is the personal experience of the transcendence of suffering. And I would suggest people in our study, that's one of the goals to have them do, to transcend this body, this disease, and be freed from the emotional anguish, even though this end of this life is happening. And Kubler-Ross, if you can become whole again, you're healed. I'm really very proud I'm going to drink again. <laughs>
when I have lozenges from Janice, these are good. <laughs> this may help. So I'm really proud and honored to be working in this study with uh, my colleagues at NYU. Looking at um, psilocybin with end-of-life distress. Uh, Hopkins and us in UCLA, these are all FDA, DEA-approved clinical trials investigating the effectiveness of one dose of psilocybin upon persons with existential and psychospiritual distress associated with cancer or the end of life and evaluated the benefits that one dose, one experience, can help in cultivating meaning, enhance well-being, and foster greater acceptance of dying with less anxiety. This is a wonderful team. Steve Ross, Jeff Gus, and myself put this together a number of years ago. These are various therapists. I'm proud Katie Maddox is here. Raise your hand, Katie. Katie was my um, co-guide, co-therapist, co-monitor, what do we call ourselves, um, throughout the study. And um, it was great working with her on some of these cases. Um, these are some of the generous research, uh, funders who, who fund these studies that don't get government funding. Hefter Research Institute, River Six Foundation, and importantly, the Council for Spiritual Practices, and Bob Jesse also directs that. He wears two hats tonight. He's an author of an article, and he runs Council for CSP, which has been incredibly supportive and integral in this research. So we work with people who had cancer. They had to hopefully be alive for one year or more, which is not always easy to predict in palliative care. And had to have a diagnosable anxiety disorder. I won't go into the criteria too deeply, each person had one placebo and one psilocybin dose. It was double-blinded, meaning all the researchers and therapists did not know what, at any given day if the dose was psilocybin or placebo. But sometimes it was easy to guess. <laughs> <laughs> or niacin can be very, very helpful. <laughs> we looked at many outcome measures. These are just some of them. Mood, spirituality, transcendence, quality of life, forgiveness, and I'll go through some of the results in a little bit. And there were three phases. So the first phase was meeting these wonderful, courageous people. And I say courageous because they came in, many of them, without having taken psychedelics before. So a typical patient, whoops, a typical patient would be a 65-year-old woman with ovarian cancer who never smoked pot or took a psychedelic. And the courage to come into a study and take a magic mushroom and hope it helps you with your anxiety is just, I, I find it very touching. And they were all so incredible. They're, they're the pioneers. And uh, one, one of the remarkable things that happens so often is they're nervous, understandably, about taking it. And within a few hours, with, as it begins to occur, they, they suddenly relax and feel comfortable. And I can safely say all of them, at least a large majority of them would say later, without the prior experience, that I knew that place. It was familiar. I knew I was safe right away. And it's so striking. Like, I felt safe as it began to happen. Okay. Now, we prepared them to trust their bodies, trust the wisdom of the medicine, trust us, uh, and to stay with the experience. I'll discuss that in a moment. But to hear words like, I knew this place. I knew I was in safe, on a safe path. Because first, for me, I, I think that we are wired for meaning, that these states of awareness are part of who we are, even though they may be hard to access much of the time. So we meet them and spend two to four weeks doing kind of preparation work, 
helping them understand possible phenomena they could experience. We develop a strong sense of trust and rapport. Without trust and rapport, we don't go forward to the dosing session. It's, it's crucial to have that sense of rapport to minimize adverse effects and adverse reactions. We explore their life history. We explore their reaction to cancer. We explore their intentions from being in the study. It's all about intention. Why are they doing this study? We discuss their concerns about the end of life. This is our room. It's in a hospital, but not your typical hospital room. It was kind of like a nice living room setting. Very expensive rug. Can you see the rug there? Half the budget on the rug. <laughs> but it was worth it. It was the magic carpet rug. So they come in early in the morning after four weeks of preparation, and they lie on this couch that, that's made a bed for the day. This is actually a picture of, a, of the morning of, a, of, I think, the first session. I think with our first patient. I think this was the first session. Um, she hadn't arrived yet. And then when the patient comes in, we ask them to bring in personal items. So they bring in photographs and religious icons or rocks or people bring in roller skates, whatever's important to them and meaningful. And it makes, it makes it their room for the day. So when they come up and out of the experience, intermittently, they see things that are important to them. And they see photographs of family and of people they love. Um, at 9 o'clock, they take the pill. We don't know what it is. Within an hour, we recommend they lie down into the position they take for, the, for most of the day. Eye shades to encourage internalization of the experience, to go into the experience. Headphones playing gorgeous music. That Nick helped us create the set list. Thank you, Nick. Everyone's here today. Um, and they've been encouraged for weeks in training to go into the experience and to accept the unfolding moment by moment. And if things occur that might be frightening, to stay with it as we would in mindfulness meditation. And by staying with it, almost all the time it transforms and changes to something much more insightful and something meaningful. By avoiding it, I think we, we only facilitate what seems dark in our lives. There's a patient later I'll discuss about her experience with a dark, dark experience, and by going into it, it just changed into an incredible mystical experience. We don't do much. The best of sessions, I don't say a word. The best of sessions, they're down, they're going into the experience for you know three to four hours peak. They get to come out of it, and they go home that night around five, six o'clock. We speak a bit at the end of the day. But they come back the next day, and we spend four weeks doing kind of integration work around what happened. So on the best day, there's nothing we can do. We're just watching this incredible thing unfold. If they need us, of course, they can sit up, take their head shades off, take their eye shades off, and speak. And we can reassure them, and we're there for reassurance throughout. But it's incredible how the experience helps those go into the unfolding. Set and setting are crucial. Set is the mindset of the patient. Setting where it's done. An intention. Why are they doing this? Which is why there are so many, well, there's a capacity for bad experiences when not done in a safe setting. Because set, the person, who they are, their history, the setting, and intention aren't worked out. This is um, our new room. We moved locations, and these are the headphones they wear, and there's the pill, and so set and setting are crucial. This is not a good set and setting, by the way. Ms. Updike, please hold my calls for the rest of the afternoon. I've just taken some LSD. So not a good set and setting. Um, and it's why I really 
strongly support our need to do this in the way we're doing it scientifically to help optimize the good results and better understand how these medicines can help um, in optimal settings. Potential outcomes of our studies. A shift in awareness with the potential to, to transform assumptions and beliefs regarding the nature of being, self, the body, and even death. The experience of cancer may be transformed and no longer be an anxiety-provoking experience as the person connects to the transpersonal. Improved spiritual well-being. Increased capacity for appreciation of time living. Increased sense of meaning and purpose. Increased acceptance as death as a natural cycle of existence. It's one thing for us to intellectually understand that we're born, we live, and we die, and it's been going on that way for Although we go on the way, unless we get very lucky, we're all going to die. But it's another thing to have that powerful internal experience of I accept that. And, that. and that just relieves their anxiety and it's something to see. Enhanced capacity for their relationships, intimacy, and love. So we're, we're preparing a manuscript for publication. And um, the journal, which we're submitting to, which I... Can't can't say um, has allowed us to speak briefly of the oh, speak of the results, but um, I would ask that no one take any photographs of the results I might show you. Um, so just some general findings we found. Findings we found. One dose of psilocybin resulted in an immediate and significant decrease in measures of death, anxiety, demoralization, and hopelessness. It resulted with statistical significance, and an increase in forgiveness and quality of life. Over half rated the experience as a top, one of the top five most spiritually significant experiences of their lives, including the single most. This is a scale devised by um, Hopkins. Almost 70% rated as the top five most meaningful experiences. And 82% of these patients who have cancer said it greatly improved their life experience and general well-being. I won't get stuck in the weeds of the data. I'll show you a few things. You can see majority of our patients had either stage three or stage four cancer, serious cancers. This is um, a scale looking at um, anxiety and depression. And you see the red, I'm not going to point you on me, forgive me. Um, the red is the placebo and the blue is the psilocybin. So each person had psilocybin and placebo. They waited six weeks near the other medicine. This is before the crossover, as we call it. So we're seeing outcomes at the six-week marker. And you can see the blue line, the psilocybin line, in terms of anxiety and depression, was profoundly significant. Effect sizes that I won't bore you with um, the numbers, but they were profound effect sizes um, with that. Depression scale the same. Blue psilocybin, red placebo. Another depression scale. All at six weeks. This is anxiety scale. These are anxiety scales. Anxiety. And these, these scales combined throughout, you see the consistent reduction in the psilocybin group versus the, uh, the niacin group. We then looked at, um, you probably can't read this, but nine months at the end of the study, what happens? And the psilocybin group, now they both become a psilocybin group eventually, of course, because they're crossing over, but the effects lasted nine months. At the end of the study, the effects I read to you were still prevalent. So it's, it's quite stunning. It doesn't happen in psychiatry or in palliative care. 
Um, and we should be publishing this hopefully in the next three to six months, maybe sooner. Interesting, we looked at, was there any correlation between prior use, some had prior psychedelic use, spirituality, or cancer stage, and their outcomes, and there was no differences noted. So, four things I identified, that I, I was struck by, that people talked about openly, that they experienced, that was transformative, was the transcendence that we talked about, this incredible sense of pulling the lens back, equanimity and acceptance of impermanence and change, coping strategies important to all of us in trying to get through this, at times, difficult life, but more difficult when you have a serious disease. And I'm sure somebody here tonight is suffering with a tough medical diagnosis. And so you know that equanimity and balance and to be in the moment is tough when the next moment may bring some uncertainty. And finally, of love. I've been struck by the experiences of love that people have spoken about that I, I think is one of the primary criteria of change. And I want to read to you a few narratives of people in our study. The first is a woman who is a New York City resident and an atheist. I was going to say a New York City atheist. But she is, and that's a tough atheist. That's not a California atheist. A California atheist is like, yeah, maybe I'm agnostic. New York City atheist is, you know, zilch. Nothing's happening beyond what I see. And she still is. And she had a profound mystical experience and one of time to get into all our conversations about what she thinks happened, although I might. Um, and uh, she had early stage cancer, but she was crippled by the anxiety. And I mentioned her atheism because it makes this quote so much more touching. And she's been public. She's been on the radio and she's now, you know, done some radio shows. So I'm not, if I mention the name here, it's because that person has gone public. This is her talking. This is a year later. After a while, I started to feel love, just all-encompassing love. And I felt that I was bathed in love. And really, I think the only way to express this in our language is to say you were bathed in God's love. Well, I'm an atheist, so bathed in God's love is not what I want to say. But that really expresses the feeling, totally, totally encompassed by love. And I kept that feeling through the entire experience and the next day, and I still can experience this frequently. And I think it's true. Every moment that you have is like an eternity. There's another moment and another moment, and there aren't any more for you. And then you're gone. And that's okay with me. I intend to enjoy every moment I have. And since the experience, I've enjoyed so much more of my life. We're going to see a bit of her later in a video I'm going to show you. This patient um, I was honored to work with. This patient is named, this volunteer was named Patrick. He was uh, profiled in the New Yorker piece by Michael Pollan, who's kind of the the articles organized around, organized around his cancer experience. He passed away a year and a half after being in the study. He was an incredible person. I, I miss him. He was, he was great. He was in his 50s, had a horrible cancer, and a more horrible chemotherapy that destroyed him. And he had a complete mystical, I, I think the, proto, the prototype of experience. He was, he was it. Um, he called it life-changing. Love just transformed him. He had a lovely wife who he did not want to leave, but he was not afraid of dying. Um, he experienced the eternity of consciousness and transcendence of no death and no beginning. And I want to read to you a part of his narrative. There's a piece that was 
printed in the New Yorker, and I want to read to you a larger piece. He was a journalist, by the way, a pretty well-known journalist, so he was a good writer. That's helpful when you're having these experiences. This is written about, a, this is the next day after his experience, over the next day or two. From here on, love is the only consideration. He's talking about his experience. Everything that happened, anything and everything that was seen or heard centered on love. It was and is the only purpose. Love seemed to emanate from a single point of light. It was so pure, the sheer joy, the bliss was indescribable. And in fact, there were no words to accurately describe my experience, my state, this place. I know if I know earthly pleasure that's ever come close to this feeling, no sensation, no image of beauty, nothing during my time on earth has felt as pure and joyful and glorious as the height of this journey. I was beginning to wonder if man spent too much time and effort at things unimportant, trying to accomplish so much when really it was so simple. No matter the subject, it all came down to the same thing, love. Earthly matters such as food, by the way, he was a foodie, a big foodie. His wife's a well-known food writer. And he's a musician, so if he says this, it matters. Such as food, music, architecture, anything, everything, aside from love, love seems silly and trivial. All of our countless and never-ending attempts to get to the source are overproduced. We put too many notes in a song, too many ingredients in our recipes, too many flourishes in the clothes we wear, the houses we live in. It all seems so pointless. We should focus on the love. There were examples of other religions around me, American Indians, Hindus, Christians, and others. Not necessarily people, just the thought or understanding of other religions all circling around the same source of energy, all focused on one thing. There was an understanding and a respect for each other's challenges and efforts to get to the same place. A brief death, by the way, I should point out, he had an incredible death birth experience where he, um, and I have permission to say this from him and his wife, his rebirth was actually physically giving birth. Knees up, holding our hands, pushing, and reliving the birth process, and we'll get into the details linked to his birth and his mother, but he was kind of giving birth, and once that happened, the next three hours were just stuck in this incredible space of love. Um, kind of like born again, which I think probably is the root of the initial word where it first appeared. A brief death, I was aware in a sense that my life earth had stopped. I was now presented with an opportunity to go as close to the source of light and vibration. Everything was peeling away, object by object, molecule by molecule. I approached what appeared to be a very sharp, pointed piece of stainless steel. It had a razor blade quality to it. I continued up to the apex of this shiny metal object, and as I arrived, I had a choice to look or not look over the edge and into the infinite abyss, the vastness of the universe, the eye of everything, of nothing. At this point, he had metastases in his lungs. I thought about my cancer. I took a tour of my lungs. I could see some things, but it was more a matter of feeling the inside of my lungs. I recall breathing deeply to help facilitate the scene. There were nodules there. There were tumors there. But they seemed rather unimportant. I was being told with that words to not worry about the cancer. It's minor in the scheme of things. Simply an imperfection of your humanity and the more important matter. The real work to be done is before you, again, love. Undoubtedly, my life has changed in ways I may never fully understand, but I now have an understanding, an awareness that goes beyond intellect, that my life, that every life, that all is the universe, equals one thing, love.
I had the great privilege of not only knowing him, but of seeing him within a week of his passing. And it was an incredible time. And we spent time talking and being with each other. And um, I want to say goodbye. No one will be my last time seeing him, most likely. And I cry a lot. I'm a cryer. Who's a cryer? You a lot of criers? Good. Ah, I don't get that at the university grand rounds either. All the oncologists say never. I don't, <laughs> I don't cry. Any oncologists here? I don't want to insult the oncologist. I love oncologists. Um, so I'm, I'm crying and saying goodbye and till we meet again. And he looks at me with his wife there with a smile from ear to ear and with complete authenticity. He tells me it's going to be okay and assures me and his wife he's fine. It's going to be okay. And I find it incredible. He's reassuring me. And uh, he had experiences the week before he died that were pretty incredible about the other side. They won't get into, but um, he attributed this experience to um, his incredible passing. And his wife has as well. She's been very helpful. She's took part in the New Yorker article, and she's um, changed her life. I think she's going to do something different now um, in the context of this work. She's, she's beautiful. Thich Nhat Hanh says, our true nature is the nature of no birth and no death. Only when we touch our true nature can we transcend the fear of non-being, the fear of annihilation. These are three people in our study. The woman the, with the glasses, the older woman, is the atheist who had an incredible experience. So uh, I forgot to mention, with love, typically it was expressed in three ways, three domains. One was a, a sense of self-love that they would experience and forgiveness. One was a deep sense of love for people in their life or other parts of their lives. People may have passed away. Then there was this broader, you know, what I like to call from the Greek, agape, uh, or cosmic love, or larger love that um, that transformed them. Now, Dinah, um, the interview's kind of chopped up here, obviously, so you don't see the full sequence, but in Dinah's experience, she, she had... Um, at the beginning, she felt this dark mass in, internally, um, and she she thought it was she called it her fear, a big black mass. She went into it, and that when she got very worried. It was, it was a very rough, maybe just ten minutes. It wasn't long, but it was rough. And um, held her hand, and as soon as she went into it, began screaming at it. You know, what do you want? You're not going to eat me alive. What, she's fighting with it. It just dissolved, and then for three hours, she's in timeless love. Um, so that experience of staying with and confronting the darkest of experiences versus shying away. I was in Janice's office before. We were talking about cases, and I thought of a case because um, I'm going to see the sister of this person who passed away this weekend, and uh, we printed it out in her office from my laptop quickly. I want another type of experience. There was one gentleman who did not have a mystical experience, um, they had a very effective one. And um, there was a gentleman who uh, came from Eastern Europe and his entire family was, was really killed in the Holocaust. Uh, he was young and he, he escaped and went to Paris and other cities and came to the States eventually. And so much of his life, the foundation is people being killed in the Holocaust, his cousins and uncles and aunts and so much of his initial family. And... Um, he didn't have this full mystical experience, but he had this incredible working through so much foundations of trauma. And I think if he had other 
opportunities to take psilocybin, he would have had different experiences. But as Bill Richards says, you don't get the experience you want, you get the one you need. And um, it was very therapeutic, he was churning through this layers of tough memories. And um, just talking before Janice, and I just thought of this, we, I typed it up quickly, I mean, I printed it. During his session, he was lying down, eye shades, headphones. They always look beautiful lying there with the tears coming down their face. <laughs> Gorgeous. It's really an honor to be in the presence of that. I mean, to be in that room is, you know, you can't get a better day to be a clinician. And he was lying there, and, and he muttered, said something in German. And I, I don't speak German. He said it twice, and I uh, leaned over, and he said it again, and didn't know what he said. Then he said in English, can I have a cup of water? So we got him water. Katie was there. Um... And that was it for then. And then at the end of the day, we asked him, well, you know, what had happened earlier when you were that experience? And he actually revisited an experience of a story he was, that's, he was told when he was young. And uh, I'm going to read to you his narrative. I'm going to change the name of his cousin, nephew. My mouth, okay. when I asked for water, I thought of the only Holocaust reference that came up during the trip my dad's nephew, in the three-day train ride to Auschwitz. Trained to say in German through a high slit to which he was raised. He was raised, hoisted by my mom. Ein bitten Wasser bitten. I can't speak German. A little water, please. My mom's family and my dad's family at that point were in a cattle car and they were all, all killed. On the couch that day, he kind of became his, his um, cousin. And he re-experienced his cousin being trained to ask the Nazi soldiers for water on the way to his, you know, if he got thirsty on the way to the camps. And uh, so these experiences return us to, you know, important psychodynamic foundations, to spiritual realms. But for him, it was about revisiting and being with some of the, some, you know, incredible suffering. So to my, he, did, he just died this year as well. He, lives, he lived here and he's a great, great guy. A great artist. All right, we're in the bottom of the ninth inning. You got to use a baseball metaphor once a day. Bottom of the ninth inning. Here we go. Um, I want to discuss a new study we're starting. Um, it's also being done. Charles Hopkins and Bob Jesse is one of the founders uh, and donors for this research, um, and it's really a lifelong dream of mine. We're looking at the uh, effect of psilocybin experience on religious professionals. So we're recruiting priests and rabbis and roshis and imams and professional people who are ordained in their faith and have a congregation to, um, I'll, I'll tell you in a second what we're looking at. So um, you know, these states of awareness of spiritual nature could be described as such. And so why not have people who spent their life studying this language and vernacular to describe it and help us describe it? Um, Albert Einstein, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. I'm going to quickly mention the early Good Friday experiment. Most of you know this. 1962, they gave psilocybin to theology students at the Marsh Seminary in Boston. Um, very famous study by Walter Pankey, supervised by Timothy Leary. Um, this is before all the shenanigans. And uh, they showed that the 10 people who had psilocybin versus placebo had profound mystical experiences identical to those found throughout millennia, throughout history, as expressed by the mystics, by naturally occurring experiences. And that was the foundation. 
Uh, that was the last study to happen until Johns Hopkins replicated that with their 06 study. And now we are taking this on as I think the parent study to this to look at religious professionals. That's Theological Seminary. Carl Jung in 1937 writes, I want to make clear that by the term religion, I do not mean a creed. It is, however, true that every creed is originally blessed, based, on the one hand, upon the experience of the numinosum, or numinosity, that's mystical experience. And on the other hand, pistis, or faith. And confidence in a certain experience of a numinous nature and in the change of consciousness that ensues. We might say, then, that the term religion designates the attitude peculiar to a, it should be particular, to a consciousness which has been changed by an experience of the numinosity. So he's talking about the common ground of all religions. We're hoping that this, experience, this experiment, or looking at hypotheses, will investigate the utility of a psilocybin-generated experience for religious leaders, evaluating their benefits they may have on their clergy. The expectation that these people, after mystical experience, could show increases in well-being, life satisfaction, and other positive changes that could enhance their professional capacity to serve others. With the expectation or the hope that these professionals, given their interest, unique life training, and experience, will be able to make nuanced descriptions of their experiences, thus helping us and contributing to the scientific understanding of these mystical-type experiences. It could also explore potentially the effect it has on their spiritual interpretation of their own path. You know, what, I, what I'm struck by is that much of the grounds of religion of the mystics to spoke about and the foundations of Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity and Judaism, they're hard to grasp in ordinary consciousness. So things like we're all connected, it's an illusion that we're separate, it's hard to grasp when we look so separate. But in non-ordinary states, it somehow seems perfectly understandable. There's no end and no beginning. People experience that in a very direct way. Um, so much of scripture comes alive in non-ordinary experience. So it would be curious to see how these people will revisit and understand their own traditions um, if they have a powerful mystical experience. And the study also potentially seeks to look at the common ground of all religions. At the end, could the imam and the rabbi and the priest be saying, you know, we share the same common ground? Famous uh, scholar Stay says, on a psychedelic experience, it's not a matter of being similar to mystical experience, it is mystical experience. Um, let's show this quickly. So in ancient Greece, in the Eleusinian Mysteries, they used a compound like psilocybin or LSD, a precursor to LSD, ergodalkaloid, to induce um, mystical experiences in these famous ancient Greek rites. Um, I include this photo because this woman is the chief archaeologist. I went there about 10 years ago. She's the chief archaeologist, and I went there thinking she's going to love this research. She's going to love that we're doing this research. So it turns out she doesn't buy the idea that at the mysteries they were using entheogens or psychedelics. Um, and some don't. I mean, it's, you know, a lot, a lot of people do. And, um, some evidence they were using agents similar to what we use current psychedelics. But her take was, and many others have said this as well, that it was really, you know, there was a, people fasted for days. They walked from Athens and, you know, five, ten-day walk. They got there. They spent time alone in this incredible chamber for days. And, and that alone facilitated the experience. Um, I gave her a lot of literature to read. <laughs> I plopped on, like, you know, a stack of papers and, you know, 
Um, but it was, a, it was great to be there. And this is some photos of the actual site. Um, this is actually, this was covered by a big, it was covered, but now it's been demolished. But these are the actual um, steps or benches, so to speak, where people would sit um, in these elucidating mysteries. Um, they were an incredible part of uh, um, Greek history. So we're going to close up, but I want to say something about nothing. <laughs> uh, many of our participants speak about this incredible nothingness they experience in their trip. And we all hear about in Buddhism and in psychedelic literature and in every major religion, if you really study the deep, if you go under the hood of it, most religions, there's, there's talk about nothingness. It gets kind of wiped out of the everyday narrative. But they speak about this incredible sense of nothingness. And I put together a few quotes from a patient and some from uh, religious quotes about this incredible experience, um, that it's not nihilistic, as it sounds, like people think Buddhism is nihilistic, but it's a nothingness filled of, of a suchness. And uh, then I want to follow up with a brief video that I, I find very touching from Alan Watts about nothingness. In Buddhism, they call it sunyata, and it's a very misunderstood and complicated concept. I don't want to appear to know what it, to understand it myself. Um, <laughs> But I, I do know that it's not nihilistic in its nature. And, um, you know, the Heart Sutra says all phenomena are, are, are in their own being empty, but not that they are empty. In their own being, they are empty. But Thich Han talks about the interbeing of all things. But the common ground of being is a nothingness of Brahman, Tao, Nirvana, Kenosis. Meister Eckhart's pure nothingness is in perfect accord with Buddhist sunyata, so says the Zen scholar Suzuki. Thomas Merton, who night before he died, said that the future was the integration of Buddhism and of Zen and Christianity. He wrote, the journey into the true self or God is where, quote, all is emptiness and all is compassion. In Buddhism, they call it the sashtas, the tathate of all being. Eichhardt calls it the isness. And at that level of religion, is, there really is no difference, I found. I was in a Greek monastery in a monastery in Mount Athos, and it was like being in a Zen monastery. There's no different difference at the mystic core level. This is a patient from our study, who, by the way, was not, <laughs> I'll have to talk about this when I'm done. And I went into this black area, and it was just wonderful. And I just thought to myself, this is kind of like, I think this might be what people experience when they die. This might be what it's really like. You just go into this sort of nothingness. It really felt natural or logical. I would like to stay there, I thought. I would like to stay there as long as I can. I like this area. The wonderful nothingness is just so great. It's nothing. Maybe death is a beautiful thing. This is a woman who had no spiritual background. And after our work together, I always recommend that you start a meditation practice. And some go, some don't go. She went to a Zen monastery, which she was a, didn't want to go to. And she went one session and came back. So I'm not going to go again. I might go one more time. But I'm not going to chant. But I might, you know. When again, well, long story short, she's now a regular lay monk, robes and all, and <laughs> it's touching, and um, she's doing incredible work. Um, a few quotes about nothing, then we're going to show a little video, and we're going to end up here. Suzuki, in Buddhist, in Buddhism, Buddhist emptiness, there is no time, no space, no becoming, no thingness. It is what makes all these things possible. It is zero, of, full of infinite possibilities. It is a void of inexhaustible contents. In the ultimate truth, we use words like emptiness. Emptiness is an expression that is equivalent to God. God is the ultimate, emptiness is the ultimate. 
Emptiness is the absence of notions and concepts. You cannot describe God with notions and concepts. Eckhart quoting St. Augustine. There is a heavenly door for the soul into divine nature where some things are reduced to nothing. Early Greek Orthodox scripture is wonderful. Books like the Philokali and, and Plot of a Knowing talk about all of this. There's a quote in the Bible. Jesus made himself nothing. He emptied himself. A well-known rabbi in Judaism, Jewish mystic, said, How could finite vessel hope to contain the endless God? Therefore, see yourself in nothing. Only one who is nothing can contain the fullness of the presence. St. Gregory, no one gets so much of God as the man who is thoroughly dead. And the talking heads, heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. Maybe there's something, there's something there. A lighter note, even in comedy, there's, <laughs> there's talks about nothing. So who knows a sci-fi show about the show about nothing? Everyone knows that, right? So I'm not sure if Larry David was onto a mystic truth when he wrote this, but I want to read part of the script. So you recall Jerry and George have an idea for a show. And they go to NBC, and they're going to present their pitch for the show about nothing. And Jerry's against it. And George keeps saying, it's about nothing. NBC is going to buy this show. So they go to the headquarters of NBC. Right? Everyone knows this. And the NBC executive says, so what did you come up with? And George says, I think I can sum up the show in one word, nothing. And the NBC executive says, nothing. And George says, nothing. By the way, do you ever think of me discussing George Costanza at CIS? I mean, like we have, you know, Horbino and Ramakrishna now, George Costanza. And the NBC exec says, what does that mean? And George says, this show's about nothing. And Jerry says, well, it's not about nothing. And George says, no, it's about nothing. And Jerry says, well, maybe in philosophy, but even nothing is something. So, I'm closing up shop here tonight. Um, some implications for all of this. <clears throat> I mean, that video is available online. I, you could, if you Google Alan Lost Nothingness, you'll see that. And um, it's a beautiful description. Improving how we die is psilocybin research. Experience of peace, acceptance, and dignity are possible even with the separ separation from this life. Hopkins and NYU are now publishing the results, and along with UCLA, hopefully will result at some point future studies, and hopefully at some point these medicines can be rescheduled for use in the application of people with end-of-life distress. This research provides a method to reliably trigger and scientifically study mystical experience states of consciousness in a laboratory setting and improve our understanding of the neurobiology, the neuroscience of mystical states, so that have pro-social and ethical implications. If we're all connected and the same thing, how do we hurt one another? Treatment of addiction, other therapeutic applications, implications for religion, are we wired for meaning? Does it help us understand what is consciousness? Where is consciousness? We don't know. It's the final frontier of science. Is it generated solely by our individual complex brain functions? Or does it exist outside of our brains, outside biology, outside of ourselves? Because it always existed. Is consciousness the fabric of the ground of being, of the universe, that we just tap into it? Scientists don't call it non-local consciousness. It's amazing we don't know. What happens to it upon physical death? What if anything endures? Our patients have said, and mystics have said, love. So he's been speaking about 
mystical experiences um, naturally and with medicines. Uh, there's a well-known one by Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut. On the Apollo 14 mission, on the way back from the moon, he had a peak experience that changed his life. And he wrote about it. He was in the spaceship coming back from the moon, looking out the window at it. Must have been a beautiful sight. And it catapulted him into this incredible state. And he wrote, The biggest joy was on the way home. In my cockpit window, every two minutes, the earth, the moon, the sun, and the whole panorama of the heavens. It was a powerful, overwhelming experience. And suddenly I realized that the molecules of my body and the molecules of my partner astronauts and the molecules of the spacecraft were prototyped, manufactured in some ancient generation of stars. And there was an overwhelming sense of oneness, of connectedness. It wasn't them and us. It was, that's me. That's all of it. It's one thing. It was accompanied by an ecstasy, a sense of, oh my God, wow, yes. And inside an epiphany. What he's saying is, the mystics have said that we're all connected. That there's no separation of substance. There's no beginning or end. I guess you can call it star stuff or the same divine stuff. You pick a vernacular we're more comfortable with, scientific or religious. But if we're all made of the same stuff, with no beginning or end, does that have implications for how we live and how we die? An Islamic scholar from the 3rd century, I believe, El-Bastami, says, the thing we speak of can never be found by seeking, yet only seekers find it. And Jesus says, seek and you shall find. At the heart of it, at the very best, we humans are seekers. Like the NASA astronauts, we're at our best when seeking new worlds, the universe and new worlds within. We're at our best when seeking new discoveries, when we collaborate to seek new ways to help and heal one another and heal our planet. Through ancient wisdom and modern science, we seek truth and knowledge. We're seekers. We seek. Determination, courage, and maybe some luck. Sometimes we find. I want to close with a quote from Patrick, who was the patient who was in the New Yorker article I spoke about earlier, who passed away. On the day of the psilocybin session, <clears throat> two hours, it was 11 o'clock on the dot. I wrote it down. For two hours, nothing happened. He was lying there looking beautiful, nothing happened. And we try to be present and have equanimity, not expect too much. Be on the analyst, there's no desire, no memories, be in the moment, but you are wondering what's happening with the person. We haven't checked in yet. Checked in once, he was doing okay. 11 o'clock, with tears coming down his face, he says, Birth and death is a lot of work. Birth and death is a lot of work. Then later, at the end of the day, over the next four weeks, he said, That was the beginning. That was the start of his incredible journey to understand life and death, his cancer, and his imminent death. It reminded me of a quote in Zen about the importance of life and death that I want to quote this, close with tonight. Maybe to get you kind of to involved here and close up, we can read this together, whoever wants to read it. The Zen Evening God. Read it with passion, right? Like in a monastery. Let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by and opportunity is lost. Each of us should strive to awaken, awaken. Take heed to not squander your life. Appreciate your attention. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, 
Find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.